Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Rude Health's co-founder and brand director, Camilla Barnard. Rude Health is a bright and bold food company which produces cereals, snacks, and one of the early competitors in the plant-based milk world. I really enjoyed the conversation with Camilla. I think um, scaling a business to that size when you've, she mentioned she only started with £4,000 is quite a compelling story. And, and also how their audience changed as their business grew. Um, non-dairy milk was a big turning point for that business as well. Um, that she goes into the details of how that came about and how it became such a driver. I think it was interesting finding out that her business partner is actually also her husband. Mm. So it was interesting understanding more about that relationship and how they separate work from uh, their home life, but also how they got everything started in their kitchen and their willingness to just make things work. And the product basically came from a place of them thinking it would be amazing and then not just stopping in their kitchen at something that they'd made that they enjoyed they actually ended up turning that into a business which is really inspiring to listen to so what do you think business owners can learn from camilla so one of the more interesting things that camilla talked about was she actually set up rude health during the 2008 financial crisis and she gives some tangible advice to business owners which i think is so relevant now given that it we we are heading into a recession looks like it's going to be in play for the majority of 2023, if not all of it. I think the advice that she gives is something that is going to be incredibly valuable to anyone who's already running a business or even thinking about setting one up. So this is the co-founder and brand director of Rude Health, Camilla Barnard. Enjoy. Camilla, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Very welcome. Very happy to be here. You're obviously the the co-founder and brand director of Rude Health, which you co-founded in 2005 with your husband. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, why you chose to do it with your life partner as well? That um, I imagine that was, well, for some people, maybe a stressful idea, a stressful concept. So do you want to talk us through the beginnings of, of Rude Health? Sure. It's, gosh, it seems, it's amazing. It's 17 years ago. I mean, in some ways, it seems like a lifetime. Um, you know, when I look back on starting it literally at, at the kitchen table, at our kitchen table, with the simplest idea, uh, I'd I'd grown up loving food. Um, my mother's a great cook; she cooked everything from scratch, and we always sat down and had dinners, meals together. And I loved that. And going out for meals, which was a real treat, I loved. And going abroad, you know, we used to go camping in France every summer, and the thing I most looked forward to was the food. So food was kind of my happy place. At the same time, I realised there was a bit of a disconnect in, in the UK, um, in particular between like healthy food and delicious food. Uh, and I, this was a shock to me, you know, when I left home and went to um, university, discovering that it wasn't food wasn't everyone's happy place. And lots of people had quite a negative relationship with food or felt that the food they wanted, they shouldn't have, would be delicious, but not good for them. The food that they should eat, they felt wasn't going to be delicious. And it kind of blew my mind because I just didn't have that. So fundamentally, we set up Rude Health to make healthy food delicious. It was to make healthy eating a celebration, not a sacrifice. Very simple concept. Uh, but actually, at the time, nobody else was doing anything like it. And we started with the most healthy food, you could argue, because if you go, um, I can't remember what that game is, where you do association and you say one word and you have to say another one. If I say healthy food, I think muesli would be quite high up there on the ultra healthy list. So we started with the muesli and we just threw all the most exciting ingredients at it. So it had three different types of nuts, you know, brazils and hazels and almonds, and it had blueberries and it had goji berries. You know, it was a, the idea was, it was like the the ultimate muesli. So we called it the ultimate muesli. And that was it. We just started the business with the ultimate muesli. And £4,000, which we spent on tubs, aprons and labels. It was That, that was it. It was an incredibly basic, um, yeah, incredibly basic start. Did you know that you were going to, start rude health and, and start with the muesli or was it something that you were making in your kitchen and thought actually this is really good I think other people would think this was good what made you want to turn it into a business and try and generate an income from uh, your your thought process well at the time the mueslis out there were were pretty basic um, the category now has got a lot more variety in it and it looks much nicer at the time it was pretty dusty and miserable and there was you did compromise on taste. So it was a really obvious category where 
there wasn't something available that was healthy and delicious. So it was just, and there were very low barriers to entry. It's a long, which actually we hadn't particularly thought about, but you know, you can mix muesli in your kitchen. There's no kind of industrial equipment required. So it just seemed like a really, really obvious place to start. And between us, you know, we had, we had recipes that we then played with and tweaked and sort of made better and better. And um, yeah, just went for it. And I think it's one of the, you know, when you look at phases of a business and what makes them happen or not happen and succeed and not succeed, I think the the first one is going from idea to just doing it. And and I think the trick is don't overthink it, try and do it. And and it might not work. And maybe you only make it in the, you know, maybe it's something you can't make commercially from the kitchen but you know make it in the kitchen see what people think of it and and our you know we made it in the kitchen saw what people think thought of it we couldn't make it in our kitchen to manufacture because we wanted it to be organic and you need an organically certified kitchen da, da, da. so immediately we had to go out and find somewhere that was certified to be able to actually sell it but you know you we'd already sorted it by then so that was a small step it's just tiny steps that you've got to just keep doing the next one without worrying too much about the one afterwards. I mean, you've got to have it in mind, but but just concentrate on the one in front of your nose, I think, is the, is the trick. Where did the entrepreneurial spirit come from? Because a lot, so many people wouldn't have the, the confidence to make something amazing in the kitchen and then think, I'm sure that this is going to be enjoyed by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. I'm going to but commit you don't to this. Have to. I'm going to develop a brand. You don't have to. You've only got to think, do I want this? Do I think this is brilliant? And do I think there are some other people like me who think it's brilliant? And I, you know, if someone had asked me in the beginning, do you think a million people are going to love this? I would have said, oh God, I've absolutely no idea. But but I felt like I'll love it. Anybody else who thinks like me will love it. There's got to be some, you know, and let's see what happens. So it was, I think, I think we make things too big. You know, I think we we, we put barriers up there that don't need to be there. You don't have to appeal to everybody. You know, you, you you need an audience. Um, you may find it's bigger than you thought. You may find it doesn't exist and it is only you. <laughs> but, you know, it's quite easy to test it on kind of friends and family and get a sense of whether people think this is a great idea or um, absolutely not something they do. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, entrepreneurial spirit, I I think that's where doing it with someone else. You know, as you said, I did it with with Nick, my husband. Um, and that meant, you know, he'd, he'd started things up before. So it wasn't. It was quite straightforward. I mean, neither of us had ever made food before to sell. Um, it was it was completely new to both of us. But I think we just thought, why not? It, it was almost why not rather than how how do we do this? It was why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Had it started that you were overcoming that problem of healthy food that's actually delicious and you solved it for yourselves and then wanted to turn it into a business? Or did you start with an entrepreneurial spirit and think, this is something that I can solve? Probably a bit of... Both, I think. Um, I had I had always thought, for no particular reason, that I wanted my own business. I remember it's there was a some kind of weird interview question at school um, where they said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I wanted my own business," without having the least idea what that meant or why. So that 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 was sort of there. And I was at the time when we started Root Health. I just had our second child, so I wasn't. You know, I mean, literally like six weeks before so um I wasn't working at that point so it was the well was it the perfect time was the worst possible time I had two two kids under 18 months you know you could argue that's the worst possible time to try and do anything else but on the other hand I was already utterly exhausted so (laughs) I couldn't get much more tired (laughs) so I think you know it was something I'd always wanted to do um Nick uh, I think is you know is by nature uh, a sort of so a solo player you know he's he's not a company man um so between us it was sort of inevitable one of, one of the things that we that we found was that you um you started the business with an initial four thousand pounds comparatively that's not a lot to to start a business with there's plenty of stories where people have got tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands to start their business with where did that four thousand pounds go where was the, where did the majority of that money go to get things off the ground yeah, no, it is, a, it is a remarkably small amount. Uh, we were lucky in that we didn't have to buy equipment, really, or premises. So that £4,000 went on ingredients, tubs, labels, and branded aprons uh, so that we could go and do tastings and uh, a couple of large mixing kind of boxes. And that was pretty much... Oh, and 
yeah, t- yeah, that was pretty much it. It was basically everything you needed to make the muesli and then to go and go and sell it and, and do tasting. So it was it was the bare minimum, but it's a fantastic discipline because if you start, I think, only with what you really need, then you only spend what you really need to spend and you waste no money at all. And and for us that first couple of years was was live research. You know, we were making it going out there, selling it, doing tastings, getting the feedback. And that almost doesn't cost you anything. Time uh, and uh, effort, you know, you've got to, you've got to put the, the effort in. But, but to do that before spending the money, I think, is hugely, hugely valuable in working out who, you know, do you have, you know, you were asking how do you know it's going to work or, or you know, how do you know there's a market for it? That really was our first couple of years of finding out what was the response, you know, who did people want it? And it was when you when you're there in a live environment, it is so much easier than trying to ask would you would you if questions, which nobody ever answers. They don't know. Nobody knows the answer to those. But if you've got an actual food, and you go to, for example, what was then Fresh and Wild and is now Whole Foods, and you say, would you like our muesli? And they say yes, but we need it to go through a wholesaler. And you're like, okay, fine. Who? And they recommend Marigold, and you say to Marigold. Fresh and Wild want our muesli, will you buy it? And they say, well, yes, but we don't really like having only one food. You know, we want to buy more than one from you because the paperwork's too much. I'm like, okay. And simultaneously, we've been talking to Riverford Veg Box Scheme. Um, and they also wanted the muesli, but they wanted one at a lower price because it was out of sync with the veg prices. So bingo, you need we needed to make another, you know, we immediately you're into making a range in response to what the market wants without having to do research, work out prices or anything, just organically finding out what works, what doesn't work. For me, that's the most exciting way of doing it because you're finding out what's really going on. I think you mentioned something quite important there where you said when you start with the bare minimum, you focus on really what's what's really essential for the business to get going. And I think a lot of people, when you talk to them about starting a business, they still might think, oh, they they started this product, so they must, must have gone to this huge factory to get things manufactured. Um, and so for those listening, would you be able to sort of take your mind back to those early days on the kitchen table? What did it take to put that initial product together? What What was the process there? Gosh, what did it take? We played with recipes. We played with ingredients. We made mueslis until until we had a recipe that we loved that we then had to make sure that we'd actually got right, that we had actually noted that one down. Because, of course, every single time you change the mix, you need to stick down the exact quantity on the spreadsheet until we got the mix that we really loved, which, you know, initially we just made up at the kitchen table. Then we found a an organically certified cafe where we could go and mix it in the evenings bit of a nightmare because you've got to schlep all 26 ingredients, all 26 cases of ingredients in the back of the car with the tubs, with the labels, make it all up, box it all up, bring it all back again. Short term solution. So, you know, in answer to your question about sort of finding a factory, you know, again, it was uh, step by step. Kitchen tables, not commercially viable. Cafe kept us going while we had about three customers. The minute it got more than that, we realized, uh, you know, this isn't a long term solution. We need uh, somebody who can make it for us. And again, that is I do think it's a big potentially decision point in a business is are you going to be the producer or are you going to be the brand? And for us, you know, I had a background in marketing. Nick had a background in sales. So it's like, we're the brand. We're, we're sales and marketing. We are not production. So you know, we could have learned, but it felt like that's not our skill set. Other people are really good at production. There's going to be somebody who already knows how to do this a lot better than we do. And in fact, we'd already come across one of our distributors. Um, you know, they all have their own brand, Muesli's. And so we'd realized they mix them themselves. So we just said, can you mix ours? And and they did. Um, so yeah, we had um, Essential Trading in Bristol just you know, started mixing our muesli for us. So for us, it was a very simple, you know, it was a very clear decision that we wanted to be a brand rather than a than a producer. And some people choose to do both. Um, but I think it's, it is, again, it's one of those sort of crunch points of, you know, what is it you really want to, to sort of commit to? Because whatever it is, you're going to be doing it more or less every hour of the day and night for quite a few years, probably. So from that point, you've got this, um, your initial product being made. Now it's time to go to market. 
How did you start to generate that initial success and then start to get those first three customers you talked about? Uh, hand selling. We went to first, first, our first office was our local deli, which was a couple of hundred yards up the road at the time. We just said, would you take this? And they went, yeah, we'll give it a go. Uh, we did, we did tastings there. We used to love going to, uh, there was a farm, there's a farmer's market in Marylebone. We used to go there anyway because we loved it um, and would love to go for a coffee and a croissant at uh, La Fromagerie. So we said to Patricia, who owns it, would you stock our muesli? And she tasted it and went, yes, that's fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, it was a sort of combination of places where we wanted to be seen. So places like La Fromagerie was a, was a great place to be seen in. And then local delis, local health food shops. You know, initially it was one by one. And more or less sale or return and more or less hand delivered then fresh and wild you know which whole foods planet organic riverford it was but it was one by one just keep notching them up um and we did that for two couple of years before going to a malt um which again another huge leap because supplying the independence is actually is more expensive but it's much more possible to build it up slowly you get a relationship with the customer consumer you know you can you can get to them by doing tastings you can get the feedback so it's really really i found it really really valuable to do that before we approached the um supermarkets was there a point along that journey where your thinking and mindset around the business went from we're trying to make this happen to this is a successful business now and now it's about scaling it that's a good question after a couple of years we realized that we did need to we've been doing it more or less part-time um, you know, with the tiny kids, with other jobs. Um, and after a couple of years, it was really beginning to go. You know, we're like, oh, this this is a business. This is happening. And if we wanted to really be a business, we need to commit to this full time and make it go. Um, so, yes, it was about two years in. And at that point, we did a mini fundraise, um, friends and family, to get some upgrade our packaging, to hire a couple of people. And that was when we went for supermarket listings. So that was 2008, which anyone over the age of 40 uh, might remember uh, was actually could not have been a worse year to, to do it with hindsight. But we didn't know that uh, until the end of the year. So we we sort of geared up in our own you know small way to becoming a, a proper, in quotes, business uh, during 2008. And thank you, Waitrose, for sticking to the promised listing when Lehman's went down everything went down uh, and recession hit and um, what happened was all the supermarkets almost overnight went from you know trying to increase their average basket size average transaction value you know increase their special premium ranges everything started to come off the shelf and that was when they created value basic (laughs) essential so we couldn't have been at that point worse placed uh, you know, as a premium breakfast cereal, brand new entering the market. But we've been promised listings in all the major malts and the Waitrose one was the only one that actually came through. And so, you know, it's they've been our longest standing um, main cereal aisle customer, still there ever since. So, yeah, they're the long-term partner. You mentioned um, setting up a business in the 2008 financial crisis, although without um, doom mongrel or anything <laughs> it's um, hard not to but yes there is well so that next year could be a little bit rocky is there any advice for uh, any businesses that are either starting or have just founded from your experience scaling the business in 2008 uh, that you can pass on to anyone that's listening that is perhaps concerned in any way is there anything advice that you can give yeah it's it's <laughs> buckle up uh and it's it's not a period of time because it wasn't quick. It was about three years. Yeah, it was a long haul, and I'm glad we didn't know that going into it. I think uh, it's there's a combination of really boring but absolutely essential. Only spend what you have. Do not spend any more money because you do not know when it's going to come in or how much worse it's going to get. And cash flow will kill you. Um, so watch every penny. That's that is not. It's not very creative, it's not very inspiring, but it's fundamental to the survival of the business. And then on the other side, we really worked hard on getting creative both with new foods that we made. We did an enormous amount of innovation through the recession. Um, And we also came up with some really interesting, unusual ways of um, 
shouting louder than we actually were, you know, bigger than our size at the time, which was absolutely tiny. And so one of the things that we did during that time was the Rude Health Rants, which was really good fun. Um, was something we kind of did anyway. It was because we're all, we were food obsessives and particularly Nick is particularly obsessive. So we'd, he would keep ranting about these same topics. And then someone said, you should record this. And we said, oh, great, because then he'll stop ranting at us. We can put it online. And, and it landed really well with people. And then other people started saying, oh, actually, you know, in the food world would say, oh, I get, you know, I get what he's saying about, you know, milk or fat or whatever it was. Can I have a rant? We sort of thought, this is a great idea. So we ended up, I don't know, you'd call it curating now, but at the time it was sort of hosting. What we ended up doing was hosting the Foodie Speakers Corner on the website and then, you know, live at the Real Food Festival. And then long term for about 10 years, we did it at Abergavenny Food Festival. And it's something that no one else did. And it really made us a name and it got us great PR and some really good, uh, you know, we met some fantastic people um, through it. So it's a combination, in answer to your question, a very, very solid business. Don't just don't spend it. <laughs> don't spend anything you don't have to spend. And then get really creative to either make something that it's, it's very easy to stop acting to sort of just do the base, the bare minimum in terms of actually doing things. But I think it's the opposite. I think you've got to really go for it because you want to be ready as soon as the recession ends that you've got the best foods and you've got your, you know, you're making the most noise and that people sort of have you front of mind. I mean, we were so tiny and it's still talking about very small numbers of people, but just making those contacts, getting out there. And it was during that time that we launched not just cereals, you know, we'd done the porridge, but we did the granolas and then we came out with oat cakes and then we came out with rice crackers, um, you know, it, so it was, and it just kept us going. It keeps the excitement going and you get, you know, buyers are desperate for thrills during a recession because everybody's, you know, the, the temptation is to not do anything very creative. So actually, it was a, it was a good time, oddly, for, for getting certain listings. Just an extension to that question, would you say that despite the fact that it was likely quite a stressful few years and it felt like a lot of work would have gone into those three years, do you think because of the way that you approached that time that it was almost a net positive for the business that that occurred? It's a really good question. I don't know because I don't know what would have happened otherwise. I mean, I think it does. It did slow us down. You know, things that you know we'd have got a lot more listings a lot sooner of the cereals if there hadn't been a recession. But so it certainly wasn't easy, um, and a lot of people fell by the way. A lot of businesses fell by the wayside, and not really because they did anything wrong. I think part of it's luck, honestly. But I do think it makes you very, very good at being clear about what matters to you, what's important. Uh, it's it's a, it's an incredible discipline, you know. In good times, if the money's flowing and the list, everything's coming and everything looks easy, it's terribly easy to to get distracted, to go too broad, you know. All the when it's easy, you don't focus in the same way as when it's incredibly difficult. So it is probably a really healthy thing to have to go through, ideally once. But you know, I think it is the nature of the beast. It's cyclical. It, it happened, as you said. You know, here we are again, fourteen years later. I've heard them described as kind of like uh, how the rainforest will have clearing storms yeah, to wash out exactly. the uh, undergrowth yeah. um, and allow new growth uh, to, to to come through so and it's like the yeah. weather so yes and, and I think it's you know and, and in human nature people talk about you know human life seven year cycles you know there are there are cycles there's cycles you just got to be realistic about it there are going to be tough times get through them and be ready to thrive when it all the regrowth happens speaking of was that the period that you started to think about the plant-based milks or did that come afterwards? Because that was quite a, an important moment, wasn't it? Yeah, the plant-based milks turned out to be a turning point for the business, which we didn't know in advance. They were launched in 2013, so we started thinking about them in 2012 um, properly. Uh, so it was actually coming out of the recession. So, yeah, we'd done... All the cereal, loads of cereals by that time. And yeah, we'd done bars, rice crackers, oat cakes. And then, so it was becoming a portfolio. And there was sort of a number of things going on. Somebody said to us, oh, you know, somebody who came to visit, interested in the business said, oh, you could you could do anything grain-based. And we kind of went, I suppose we could. And at the same time, when we'd been in, in stores like Whole Foods doing tastings, uh, there were more people, still a tiny number, but more people saying, oh, have you got anything other than milk I can have with that? Because I don't, you know, for whatever reason, don't drink milk. And at the time, the selection was awful. There was more or less only soya. 
and it really wasn't good. The ingredients weren't good. The packs were ugly and they tasted terrible. So it felt really criminal putting this at the, you know, ropey milk replacement onto our, what you know, fabulous, delicious cereals. Uh, so there was a sort of combination of thinking, you know, oh, what next? Oh, we could do anything grain-based. And actually there seems to be a, a bit of a gap in the market in um, uh, alternative milks. And then we set out to find, um, Nick set out to find, he said, right, you know, we're going to go to the organic food fair. We are going to find a delicious uh, milk alternative that uses good ingredients. And we, so that was what we did. And when we launched it um, in 2013 and overnight it flew, it just flew and was a turning point for the business. That was when the fast, you know, seven years in, that was when it really started to motor. And how would you say that over the next 10 years, the, the brand has, has grown and evolved further? Yeah, gosh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I mean, the main thing is it's obviously reached lots more people. Um, it, it was it was relatively small um, and the plant-based milks, you know, have got now really solid distribution. And the other thing that changed, that was an interesting year, 2013, because I'd say that was the the really coming out of the recession and, and what changed with that, I think what showed up was it was pretty much the year that Instagram launched and it was whether chicken and egg, but Instagram launching coincided with a younger, a young generation interested in health and food. And it was the first time that eating healthily became was connected with beauty and connected with um, youth and something you I mean when I grew up in in your fridge you'd have a you'd have a lemon and in your freezer you'd have a bottle of vodka you know and, and the food thing just wasn't a thing you know that was my sort of teens and 20s you know, and nobody did health food and even though that was what my you know I loved that was what I'd grown up on it just wasn't a thing and then this next generation from in 2013 as students and post students they were having they were going to yoga classes first thing in the morning before work they were you know having green smoothies and you know the whole it was a totally different world and what that meant for the brand was was suddenly we we were we were talking to a whole different generation it wasn't yummy mummies this was this was you know yoga bunnies and 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 you know, very cool, um, very cool people who were going, actually, what I put in my body is going to make a difference to how I look. And it gave the really gave the brand a chance to to connect because the, what was in the pack is really is healthy. The name is healthy. But the thing we'd always wanted to do is, you know, making it a celebration, a healthy food, a celebration, not a sacrifice. We'd the packs in 2013, we did a complete rebrand um, and the packs looked delicious. And and that ha- we we did that ourselves, not knowing there was a whole new audience out there, but knowing that we wanted to really stand out and make an impact and really be true to who we were, which was you know bold and saying, "Hey, this is you want this." And it turned out to be absolutely perfect timing that this younger audience, you know, came into the the category of alternative milks. You know, looking at the shelf, our packs looked stylish and delicious rather than kind of functional because until then it had been very much about you know if, if you had an allergy or on a diet or you know some requirement not to have milk so they were not designed to be appealing so it was a huge standout and and it the brand landed what we'd everything we'd put into it and everything we'd done landed the timing the timing was great I, I mean serendipity has a huge part to play in that we were following our noses and doing what we believed in and there was a switch in in the consumer from that point how much would you say your core audience of like who it is that is consuming your products has changed from that point? That was the big turning point. I mean, I think until 2013, it was families, cereals, um, you know, typical. You, if you had to sort of describe them in a way that anyone would understand, you'd probably say it's a Waitrose shopper until 2013. And then from 2013 onwards, actually much harder to define Um because they were quite new as a category of people. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could at that point say who these sort of 20, 30-something young, fitness-oriented, quite urban, largely females were. And it spread from there, and, you know, quite quickly became male as well and very quickly spread from, from London. And now we I, we do find it really difficult to pin it down because it's quite it's attitudinal as much as sort of demographic in the sense that 
it's sort of what you want out of it's not just the taste you know it's a lifestyle that you're you're buying it's an attitude and and it's that sense of being in rude health so it's that sense of wanting it but you're not only buying something because of the ingredients you know not only buying it because it's good for you it's not it's not purely down to sort of calories and health it's it's about I want all that and I want to feel really good I want to feel like I'm enjoying my life and get the most out of my life you know that sense of of being up for life really um and we do struggle it is one of the things we've been really ropey about really unable to do is to really pin down that that core consumer since you launched plant-based milk for example and even in the health food space in general there have been a lot more people realizing that this is an area that they can expand into and a lot more brands have appeared have you found it in any way a challenge to stay keeping up with the competitors or have you are you the type of person that is sort of blinders on do you stay in your uh, lane and ignore the competition it's, yeah it's it's sort of both i mean as you say it is it's way more competitive um lots of people still coming into the plant milk space although it's now is pretty crowded and pretty full and i'm not you know you now look at it and go i don't know where the gaps are <laughs> i don't know what i don't know what's left to do kind of thing so it's yeah no it is enormously more competitive which just you know forces you to you've got you, the drinks themselves have to perform better they've got to be more consistent you know you've got to keep sort of making sure that absolutely because people demand a lot more now than they did nine years ago you know, the whole um things like frothing and performance in coffee and stuff that wasn't a thing nine or ten years ago you know now that's absolutely expected uh so it absolutely keeps us on our toes um we we have gone our own way and it's always been about making healthy food delicious um you know the celebration is about the taste so the thing that we've stuck to is making sure they all they still taste fantastic and that they win on taste tests and that people choose them for flavor they will and that we don't compromise on our ingredient ethics that they've got to be the best possible ingredients without just putting the stuff in that makes it. I mean, we've made our lives really difficult. It'd be a lot easier to make these drinks functional if we were happy to add a whole series of things that we're not really happy to add because they're it would make them more stable, you know, it would make them less oh, less difficult to transport, you know, all this stuff. But it means putting in a whole load of fillers that we just don't want to put in. So, you know, we tread a very fine line because we need to deliver drinks that people want to drink from a taste point of view they want them to be functional and they want all the health benefits of the excellent ingredients that we have it's a really tough one so we're kept on our toes by the rest of the category and at the same time we've absolutely stuck to all our original principles and it's it's taste and health plus functionality that's the sort of difference plus functionality is what we've had to add which is an ongoing nightmare challenge um, for the innovation team and as a brand you've got quite a fun tone of voice and my question was has it always been like that but I think speaking to you directly and being able to hear the way that you you talk about the brand I would expect that it is something that has come from uh, the collaboration between you and Nick and, and your backgrounds in marketing sales has it always been that fun tone of voice or is it something that has evolved over time I think it always has in fact our original copywriter a brilliant guy called Brian uh, Brian Miller he when we asked him to help with the packs back in 2008 uh, we sort of knew what we wanted to say. I knew what I wanted to say but I wanted someone to make it a bit better because I'm a reasonable writer but I knew it wasn't quite good enough and then I gave it to Brian he you know we had lots of discussions with him and he created the tone of voice which he said was basically a combination of me and Nick and and that which and that's fundamentally sort of what we've stuck with uh, ever since you know there have been it's actually really hard to keep to a tone of voice because it's very, the other thing was, although I can write perfectly well, I'm not a copywriter. And the difference between what I give to Brian that I think is nearly there and what Brian comes back with is extraordinary. You know, it's it's the difference between something you would kind of forget uh, and something that actually makes you laugh. You know, even though I get, you know, all the content was there but he just turns it into something at a completely different level. But yeah, it was as it has fundamentally been a combination of, of mine and Nick's actual tone of voice. And that translated into one of your first multi-channel campaigns in, in 2021, based around your dairy-free milk with slogans like, mm. our almond milk is saving the world from not very nice almond milk. 
which I thought was funny. Um, is that is that one of is that one of Brian's? Is that one or is that one that that came one from... wasn't actually that one was um, we went to an agency to um, to help us with that because it was such a big thing. Also, Brian's quite busy, annoyingly. <laughs> uh, but um, but no, we went to an agency for help on on that one. But it's sticking to the same sort of tone of voice values that we built. So theoretically, once you've got a tone of voice and you've written down how to do it and you've got examples of it you should be able to take it to other people to to write it having said that it's actually really hard you do find it changes and it is quite noticeable so trying to trying to keep a consistent tone of voice is is a is tricky and what was the aftermath of that that multi-channel campaign that that was something we'd you know for a long time people have been saying to us you know you're you, you're not shouting loud enough. You need to get out there more. You know, you're you're a you're a bigger brand, and and you haven't done a, a above the line campaign. So, and we and at that point, we we were getting a lot of new listings last year. So we really felt like we wanted to you know to get out there and shout and and support those new listings in particular. Um, Tesco's, which was a new one uh, for us, we've got the the milks listed and the cereals listed, um, which was very exciting. So the aftermath was uh, you know more people saw it and. And then we're able to go in store, go in store, and see it on shelf, having seen it somewhere else. Because you know, as you know, it, well, it usually takes three sort of sightings or mentions before you get to the shelf and then recognise it. So you know, you need to keep on doing things. But um, yeah, that was that was the sort of reason, the rationale, and the the drive was make sure that we're being seen enough, um, given our new extended distribution. Over your career and throughout building Rude Health, are there any core memorable or defining moments that stick out to you where you think if that hadn't happened, I don't think we would be where we are today? I think, well, as I mentioned, that Waitrose listing us in 2000, sticking to that listing in 2008, I think was absolutely core because we were so tiny then, I think that could have broken us. The launching the milks when we did was... Uh, incredible timing serendipitously I'd love to say we we knew exactly what we were doing I mean you could say in a way we did because we were we were so immersed in the world and the category that actually we did spot it early because we were living it so you know yes but it was a um you know there's lots of other things we've done that haven't worked but that so finally and it's a bit like hitchhiking I feel like you've got to you've got to stand in your road with the thumb out and eventually something will work um and and the milks was the, was the thing that that worked i think that was an absolute turning point um for the business i think th- those are the ones that really sort of stand out and then there have been lots of lots of smaller ones on the way i mean there's so many things that you just have to sort of you know go gosh wow that was a lucky happy moment you know we have a we have a fabulous um relationship with a large supermarket in Portugal and that was you know from our point of view entirely serendipitous you know they they came to us and asked for a meeting and it became a really really successful partnership where you know all of their stores list a range of our foods and we wouldn't even have thought of approaching Portugal as a core market you know it was and that was lovely that was because they'd seen us at a London coffee festival they'd seen us in a Whole Foods window and it was just that Again, it's the hitchhiking thing. You know, we'd been out there doing stuff and they wanted somebody with a range of healthy foods that look great. And they came to us. And so sometimes you think, oh, well, after a while, you know, many, many years in, you think, wow, nobody had to bang on any doors for that one. The banging on the doors had been done and that we just got to sort of reap the reap the reward. I think naturally, and as the listeners will be able to probably hear by now, you are naturally quite upbeat uh, as a person, which is very infectious, by the way. But oh. I think <laughs> it's... Is that something that carried you through some of the harder days um, in the business? Because naturally, doing this for 15 years, you must be a, a very resilient um, person, both you and, and Nick, to be able to do it for that length of time. Um, but do you remember any particularly hard days throughout those years? Gosh, yes. Uh, I mean, I would say that the years from the end of 2008 to basically the beginning of 2011, which is a long time, it's two full years and a bit, uh, was hard. It was absolutely relentless. Um, and, you know, it was almost a case of, you know, we had to keep on going. Uh, partly because at that point we'd remortgaged the house and we were both involved in the business. So it was, we have to make this work. And I, I think if I'd been on my own at that point, I couldn't have done it. You know, it was absolutely, you know, Nick was key in um, just unwaveringly believing in it and that it would work. 
we would make it work. Um, so I would, those two years were, I mean, scary. You know, the phone would ring and you'd think, if that's a D-list, we're in trouble. It was, you know, it was that sort of on the line for a really, really long time. That was definitely um, the toughest time. Uh, but, it, you know, it's an intense thing to do. And I know a lot of people who started businesses and who've, felt that they needed to sell them quickly or they've you know closed them after a few years you know or they failed because it's incredibly hard it's incredibly intense and it's been you know it's been an amazing experience I look at it as a third child you know partly because it's the same age you know that I've got two kids in a business that are pretty much I've got an 18 year old a 17 year old and a 17 year old business so it is a third child and it's the same intensity as a third child and it's a lot because it needs stuff of you, whether or not you've got the capacity to give it. it. It just needs it. And I think the last few years has been wonderful because just as the children are growing up and becoming, you know, independent and forging their own way, you know, the business is kind of doing the same thing. You know, Nick and I are not really needed day to day anymore. We've got, you know, other people, the business has its own momentum and we've got, uh, you know, fabulous CEO and leadership team in place who can do all the stuff that Nick and I don't know anything about. You know, we're, we're startup people, we're founders, we're, you know, the things that you need to do once it gets to the, the size it is now are things that we, we, <laughs> we do not know about, we haven't been trained in. So we've got a bunch of people now who know what they're doing um, to do that. So we're, it's beginning to be, you know that we're we're looking at it from more of a distance, and it's much less day to day, much less relentless, and it's it's so satisfying. I have to say, it's absolutely wonderful to watch. You know, something that you've given your kind of heart and soul to, that starts to have its own life and to, and to keep going. And even if I'm not there, I go away on holiday. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all anymore. It's no longer those days. I remember the days, oh, when we'd go on holiday for a week, because it couldn't be any longer, with the computer, with the dongle, you know, I mean, okay, it was, it was the old days, and you'd be driving to the top of a hill in Devon to try and get some reception so that you could, oh my God, you know, it was, it was, there was not a moment when you weren't, we weren't thinking about the business. Now I could go away for two weeks. All kinds of things could go wrong and I wouldn't even need to know. So yeah, I, I you know, this, this, this phase is, is really lovely to watch it sort of doing doing its own thing and thriving. You know, after seventeen years, we've created something that that is relevant, that really makes sense, and that's yeah, it's a great feeling. During the seventeen years of where you were much closer to the business, did you find it hard to separate work from home life? Um, and uh, moreover, did you find it hard to separate the business and its success from your own happiness at all? Mm, really good question. Yes. Uh, to the first question, yes. More or less impossible, I found, to separate business from home life. Uh, and, and Nick would always say, work is play and play is work, uh, which I know what he means, but it did mean there was no break. It was everything all the time. You know, I, I feel like there were quite a few years of my life where I basically disappeared because if I wasn't looking after the children, I was doing the business and sometimes I was doing both. So it was, I li- you know, bouncing between the house, the school and the office and, you know, if I looked at what do I want, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted because there was no space in the day or the week or the month or the, even the year for what I wanted. So there were, I did that classic thing of, you know, trying to do everything. Uh, and there aren't enough hours in the day. There aren't enough hours in the day to be a parent. There aren't enough hours in the day to run a business. There certainly aren't enough hours in the day to do both and do the stuff that you want to do. So yes, it completely took over. The kids, the business totally took over my life and it took me quite a long time to come back from that and remember, who am I? What do I want? So yeah, it was, but I don't, you know, having said that, do I regret it? You know, it wasn't a brilliant thing to do, but it almost needed doing for a bit and I didn't completely do myself in. You know, I didn't actually have a nervous breakdown, which other people have done. You know, it, it, it's that intense. Um, so... You know, I, I learned an enormous amount and I would know not to do it again, uh, which is <laughs> good. Um, and then second part of the question, what was the second part of the question was? Separating uh, happiness from work. Yeah, that's a good one. I think it was, I think it was hugely, it, 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 there was definitely a time when it was all completely conflated, collapsed into one 
thing. And I, I think even now, I mean, if the business were to go up in smoke overnight, I think I would be absolutely gutted. I mean, partly, obviously, I'd be absolutely gutted. I've poured 17 years of my life into something. Um, it would be pretty gutting. But I know who I am as a human being now. So I think it would be slightly less identified uh, with the business. So as a, as a human, I'd be more able to deal with that now than I would have been. I don't know how you avoid that. I mean, you've got to be so good at compartmentalising. And I am not. <laughs> That's not a core skill. Okay, it was a business was, yeah, when it was another child. It is another child. So, yeah, it's that personal. I think it's difficult because I've heard about people... Um trying to find things that no one else can own to gain a sense of fulfillment and success from, whether it's playing the piano or doing climbing, something that you can improve at that you're not being paid for necessarily. But it's the question of where do you find the time if you've got your two kids and your business, where do you find the time to develop another um, source of gratification and, and self-fulfillment? Um, so I yeah, I appreciate it. it must have been incredibly hard. I mean, your kids is one of course yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> you know and it's so yeah yeah absolutely um so you know it's all good now uh but it is it i mean it's a real watch out when you're in that phase of life is just don't forget to do something for yourself i think the danger is it feels selfish and i, I think this is particularly a female thing where there are demands on your time and you will tend to do more than you can actually do healthily um, and I've just spoken to so many other kind of female founders who've, who've more or less said the same thing. And I don't know. I don't know. Where, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's nature or nurture, but um, men seem to be a little bit better at sort of drawing a line and going, I need to go and whatever it is they need to go and do. So go, and, I see a mate go and have a kick around or, you know, climb a wall or whatever. I mean, it's, that's a gross generalization, but um, it's, it's much needed. And that's something that I wish I'd been better at doing. That's really, I'd never thought about that before, but now that you've mentioned it, I can see that um, just in, with people that we work with. What would you say is over your career, the, the biggest lesson that you've learned? For me um, personally, I, I don't think at the beginning of this, you know, the 17 years ago, I'd almost, I don't, almost don't think I'd have believed where it is now. If someone had said, I want you to create a business that's, you know, this successful, that's in these stores, that's, you know, da-da-da, these awards, all this sort of thing, I'd have said, I can't do that. I, I'm, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes to do that. Which is the other advantage of doing things in really small steps is you, you never, <laughs> you don't have to actually look at the kind of, the, the terrifying thing that you think you can't do um and it turns out I can do that actually I didn't credit myself with with what I was actually capable of and what I've learned is how much I can do and how how much more able I am than I thought I was and how much I was how I was much more likely to assume that other people knew what they were doing than that I knew what I was doing and I can now see that that was entirely down to confidence rather than ability and as a result I'm now finally a lot more confident I, I not that I think I'm amazing but I know I know what I can do and, and, I, and I know what I can't do there's a million things I can't do um, and that's fine but I know the things I can do so yeah I've, I've, I've it's made I've finally got I've got my confidence out of doing the business rather than the other way around and on scaling, well, either scaling a business or being successful in other areas of your life, do you have any principles that you've picked up or developed over your life or learned from others that you use as, as guiding principles for success? Not really. No, I think they're all so different. I think, you know, there's so much of this is luck. I mean, you, you know, you can put, I, you know, yes, we, we work like demons. Uh, we learned quickly. Um, you know, we've had some good ideas. And a lot of other people have done the same thing. And for some, you know, for whatever reason, their business hasn't worked and ours has. You know, it, I think, you know, there is an element of serendipity. You can do all the right stuff. You know, you can you can have a great idea. You can you can really commit to it. You can go at it. You can do everything that looks right. You can be careful with your money. You can be innovative. You can da da da. And sometimes it just doesn't land. And, you know, and it took us seven years, honestly, for the, you know, as you said, until we launched the alternative milks before it really started to fly. And that was timing. That was 
serendipity and element of it. So there are a whole bunch of things you need to do. You know, it's going to be a long haul. Don't think it's going to happen overnight. I, do you know the thing that I really, the one thing that always makes my heart sink is when, um, so it's a sort of anti-answer to your question, is when lots of people come and say, look, you know, I'd love some advice or could you give me some ideas or something? Um, and the one that makes my heart sink is when someone says, I've got a great idea for a business that I want to build and sell in three years. And I just think, oh my God, if you're already looking at an exit, what you know you haven't even you haven't even got a product you haven't made anything you haven't you've got me no samples and you're already working out how to sell it how much do you care about this thing because the the chances of it being up and running and successful and going and you've created an audience in three years ready to sell I'm just like wow do it because you want to do it do it so that in the end if it doesn't sell you'll still be proud of the the journey I don't know it's I mean it's just it's a different mindset completely that um create to sell mindset especially in a three-year time frame one of the questions i like to ask is around well it's more around um, what i'd call like a, a little black book if you will it's about the people who have been really influential or helpful or impactful to you are there people in your life or in your black book if you will that have been helpful or impactful um to you and uh, throughout your business journey yeah, actually, lots. Um, I did. I never had a, a single mentor, which is something I probably would go back and change, is to have somebody who I would go to with just about stuff off. I think that would have been a really good idea, and I didn't have anyone in particular. It didn't. I didn't think about it until sort of years later. But there have been a lot of people over the years. I mean, you know, and, and some who kind of came and went. There was for a while, random one that comes to mind. Guy called Jamie Mitchell, who um, was the MD of Innocent for a while, and then's gone on to do other really interesting things. I can't remember when we met him. It must have been two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, and he just gave us some fantastic advice. You know, he was a real supporter of the business, and he gave us some really, really good advice on branding and consistency. And over the years, there have been so many people, um, and it is really valuable getting outside advice. The other thing that's really valuable is when someone's just joined the business, and they've got really fresh eyes. And, they, and if they're prepared to sort of tell it how it is, you can get some really valuable insights when before they've, they're too close to it. Equally, when people leave, if they're prepared to be honest and really give it to you, you know, it's, it's quite, it quite often comes from places that are a little bit awkward. You know, the best advice is where it's a little bit kind of pushing the, do I really want to hear this? But that's the stuff that's often the most valuable is, is when it's, a, it's challenging. Brilliant. Well, Camilla, I think there's been a lot of really, really good information for anyone listening in this podcast, as well as some really good stories from the early days of Rude Health. Um, and we hope that it continues to grow in the same fashion under your new leadership team and everything that you've, you've got over there. Do you want to let anyone know where we can find Rude Health on any social media platforms or anything like that, or even yourself if you're active at all? You can find us everywhere. Follow it's at Rude Health on all the social media platforms. Just Rude Health, um, and then most of the supermarkets. Um, and do support your local independent or um, health food shop. And yes, transform your breakfast. Try a Rude Health cereal with a dairy free drink. Start your day the way you mean to go on. And let me know what you think. <laughs> all feedback welcome. Amazing. Thanks so much, Camilla. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.